everybody, this is Doug Platts, and you're listening to the Custom Made Podcast. Each week, I talk with digital transformation leaders within enterprise organizations and thought leaders within the custom technology space. My goal is to shine a spotlight on the work that is happening in enterprise organizations who are changing and the leaders who are driving that change. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and everywhere else you listen to Custom Made. It helps other listeners find us, and I'd love to hear what you think. You can also tweet me at Doug Platts with any feedback, questions, and potential topics. This is episode 50 of Custom Made, and this week I'm excited to be sitting down with Jonah Storr, president of Ultimate Ears, a disruptive new business group at Logitech. Ultimate Ears is an organization that pushes the boundaries of what premium custom-fit earphones can do. Jonah has had an amazing career, from consulting to startup entrepreneur to board member to entrepreneur. A globally recognized executive, innovator, and entrepreneur, here are just a few of his career highlights. In addition to his role at Logitech, which we'll talk about in more detail in today's episode, Jonah serves on the board of directors at Land's End and is the chairman of SEE, an advisory group focused on disruptive strategies, product innovation, brand development, marketing, business launch, and multi-channel retailing. Prior to Logitech, Jonah was acting as a business unit president at Sears Holdings, where he led and started a variety of businesses inside the company. He launched brands with notable talent, including Adam Levine and Nicki Minaj, as well as ran the footwear business for the corporation. In 2003, Jonah decided to convince the world that the unthinkable was possible and built a tween-focused apparel brand based on the notion that socks don't have to match. Jonah co-founded Little Mismatched and directed the company as chairman and CEO for seven years of extraordinary growth. And before all of this, Jonah was a director and strategist at Frog Design, developing disruptive strategies for Fortune 500 companies including Disney, Yahoo, Nextel, Target, and Chrysler. Jonah has been profiled in the New York Times, Entrepreneur, USA Today, Fortune Small Business, CNN, and numerous other media outlets. In 2009, he was named to Crane's New York Business 40 Under 40. During this week's episode, we dig deeper into Jonah's entrepreneurial beginnings and how he became the ultimate insider, disrupting industries from the inside by bringing both an entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial mindset. We discuss the challenges and opportunities that come with product innovation from within large organizations, how to build successful teams, and what leaders need to do within large organizations who are wanting to foster product innovation and to bring these products to market. And so without further ado, here is Jonah Stoll. Well, thank you for having me. So currently at Logitech, I am a self-described intrapreneur. So I feel like I've got entrepreneurial DNA deep down. And I was asked by our CEO, Brack and Daryl, to come into Logitech and to do something that was quite hard, which was to convince the world that they should want and they should need custom-fit earphones. So earphones that are literally made to the dimensions and the unique dimensions of your, your ear, which vary in, in, in a multitude of geometries and are one of the most complex body parts that you have. So that's my current challenge, um, which is super cool. And that's what I'm spending my time these days doing. Perfect. So let's dial it back. And as you say, you, you, you're bringing those entrepreneurial roots and experience uh, to a larger organization and trying to drive that change and bring new products to market. So dial back a little bit further in your career and talk about what was your journey to Logitech? So I think, as I said a moment ago, that entrepreneurship is in my DNA. I mean, if I go back to being five and six years old, I remember having my first garage sales. And, you know, I just had this itch to figure out market prices, to figure out how to sell people things. And so in every, every engagement that I've taken, whether it's in a company or on my own, it's always been about 
figuring out unique twists on uh, on, on products, unique uh, innovations, and that ultimately lead to building marketplaces and building consumer demand. And so, for me, my path here very succinctly is that you know if if you look, I have built. Uh, a consumer products company called Little Mismatched on my own. I had worked inside of an innovation consulting firm called Frog Design, working with probably 200 different companies on disruptive innovation. I'd worked with uh, Fortune 500 companies as an internal uh, executive. I've worked in apparel soft lines. I've worked in in hard lines, uh, being technology and, and other products. And so my road my road to getting to Logitech was doing all of these different things and then stumbling upon a CEO with an opportunity that just felt like it fit right. Yeah, and, and looking at your career from the consulting side to being a true startup entrepreneur to, to then building brands within large organizations, you've, you've sat at every side of the table and almost a, a triangular-shaped table to be able to pull from experience and grow from experience as well. A lot of our audience work at large organizations, and uh, there are many challenges that come with driving entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship innovation within these organizations. Usually, these can be there's a lot of bureaucracy, um, a lot of legacy systems to manage, a lot of culture changes that need to come into place as well. So, as you look back at your your career path and the learnings that you've had from the consulting side, from the startup side, from working with some of the larger organizations that you have and, and do today, what are some of the key things that you've found that have been valuable to help not just bring ideas to the table, but start to drive that change with this is how we can think about bringing new products um, to market from within a large, very established organization? Got it. So I think the most efficient way for me to answer your question is to really sort of take my experience here at Logitech and to talk about, um, you know, the things that I've realized are important to succeed as an entrepreneur here, because I think it, 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 it will help your audience understand uh, what drives success. And fundamentally, I have a tremendous amount of support at the top from our CEO and from the C-suite. And I think that's super important. I mean, down to a very basic level that in the company cafeteria on a regular basis, Bracken and I have lunch, which is a almost like a public display of his support for innovation and uh, disruptive thinking. In addition, though, despite that support, I have a street fighter mentality sort of in my DNA. And so even though there is a large organization here that can, that can help uh, potentially we really have to do it on our own. Our team has got to do it on our own and define the patterns and the numbers and to have the, the intuition to drive the change and drive the market demand for our product. Simultaneously, though, I've got the freedom to hire and fire. This is my team. This is our effort um, inside of, a, understandably, a larger company. And then finally, our team has a degree of separation. We are in a different uh, or a little bit of a remote spot in the building. We've got, uh, you know, we pass people in the halls, but we are not a series of percentages of people's time. We are 100% of, the, of our team's time focused on what we're trying to do. And so it's sort of those four things that I believe has, has driven the success that we've seen. 
Yeah, and I think we've we've seen that as well. This dedicated team um, allows for both a focus of resource and, and headspace on the project in hand, but also allows for for that tighter integration across the different aspects, from whether that's research to design to the actual engineering to the product marketing and beyond that as well. Um, tell me a little bit about the story around a little mismatched and and where that uh, startup idea came from and how that grew over time. So I'll, uh, I could give you the really long story or the uh, or or the short story, and I'll, I'll start with the short, and and then you can um, you can pull some more out of me. But fundamentally, I was working at Frog Design at the time, and at Frog, um, we had the ability uh, to do what I would call skunkworks projects on the side. And one of my projects at the time was working on uh, Disney Electronics. And we were going to build an electronics business uh, leveraging the Disney DNA. And it was ultimately a really successful, uh, essentially, startup inside of Disney. Um, But what was clear with Disney was that they didn't know what to do with the tween age market. And they would, at the time, High School Musical would create this incredible rise in in demand and tween age engagement, tweens being, uh, let's call it 8 to 12-year-olds. And then they would fall out. And that just got me to thinking, geez, what, what, what could be a solution to this? What would be an amazing tween business? And simultaneously, I was, uh, or at a similar time, I was, at a, I was working with the C-suite of Target on unique uh, disruptions for them as they were building Target as we know it. And I was at a dinner with a bunch of people that were consultants at the time to Target, and we were brainstorming crazy harebrained business ideas and uh, outboarded mismatch socks. And um, that concept paired with my memory and my understanding of what was going on at Disney with teenagers uh, got me thinking. And Little Mismatch was born a character that inspired creativity and self-expression who said nothing matches but anything goes, paired with socks that come in packs of three individual socks that hopefully would be something that would be mom-approved and kid-loved that the Disney audience um, could sort of pivot towards. And so that was really the origin of, uh, of that business, and it was a happy confluence of knowing Disney, knowing Target, and then having you know, great people around me to, to brainstorm and ultimately build a business with. And, and I think that's really interesting with regards to how, how these ideas are generated. And, and uh, as I think about some of the more est- some more established organizations, sometimes they can struggle with uh, thinking outside of their core business when it does come to ideas and offerings. And as you, whether that's from your experience through Frog or with Little Mismatched, or even as into Logitech, how how have you found the best ways to to draw ideas out of individuals yourself to to then start to think about where do, how, how do we take these ideas to products and how do we products to to businesses? You know, it's interesting. First of all, in large organizations, large organizations are not actually structured for disruptive change. I mean. Just think about disrupting the status quo. You've built an you've built an entire team to manage and incrementally grow the core competencies. So I really think it is a different mindset, and I think you have to acknowledge that. I mean, early on, back when Nextel was still still a, a business, that was my first experience. Again, consulting for Nextel, 
um, where we built, we were working on the next generation wireless communication system. And we realized like we need to have a completely separate group working on this and it can't be, it can't be, you know, portions of people's time. But so there's all those sort of fundamentals, but then there's also just a state of mind. And I like to say that I only can work with yes and people, not no but people. And when you've worked in a creative environment and you've worked with unbelievably creative people, it's super easy to it's super easy to uh, find uh, find the path through iteration and the yes and mentality. Shutting shutting down uh, ideas before they can even germinate and before they can even you know grow into wonderful flowers is something that I've often seen in large organizations because it's risky, it's dangerous, it can provoke fear and discomfort. And so I found that you know innovation really happens and, and, and this kind of entrepreneurial spirit happens when you have an environment that does foster the ideation process. But then also there's just a fundamental aspect of certain people that just have that street fighter mentality that I described before, that, that verve to get up and go and to you know, never take no as, as an answer. Right. So, you know, there's a cliche, you're never selling until someone, someone tells, you no. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to get from an idea to a reality, it's easy to have the ideas. And when I was talking about all of the sort of innovation thinking, the yes, and that gets you an amazing dry erase board or an amazing business plan, but it doesn't actually get that business into reality. So to get the business into reality, you have to pair that with, just an incredible uh, motivation and desire to climb the mountain. And I, I think that's not for everyone. And so in my, you know, in my opening uh, conversation with you or, or in my opening uh, thoughts, that street fighter mentality, like you're either born with it or you're not. And I don't, I don't think it's learned. I've, I've worked with hundreds, if not thousands of people, and some people have it and, and some people don't. And the people that have it, they're, they're just willing, they're going to, they're going to find a path, even if it's a mediocre idea to success eventually. So how do you think about building these teams? As you, as you've mentioned a couple of times through the, your career, the, one of the keys to success along with having the right mentality, um, is building these dedicated teams. Um, but, You've got to find the right person, as you mentioned, uh, and the right people. How much do you find that these people already exist within organizations? How much do you find that you've got to bring in uh, outside talent? Um, and how much do you find that people are trying to join the team um, and trying to knock down your door to join the team, but maybe aren't, aren't necessarily the right people, and that's got to be managed as well? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, One of the things that I found about people is that people are who they are. And so as an employer, I try to figure out what is someone's superhuman capability, what is their special superpower, and try to embrace that. And if I hire and I make a, a hiring, quote unquote, mistake, they've got to have something that they can add unbelievable value to our team uh, with. And the question is finding that, that unbelievable value that they can add. And sometimes it's harder to find than others. But Ultimately, to build a team, you have to have an idea, or I believe that I have to have an idea of the people that we need to do the job. And we have to marry that. And that, that's, that's actually not as easy as you think. And you have to marry that with people that actually want to do those jobs. And I know that sounds obvious too, but it's, it, most 
people are, I, I find, often not in the right job and they don't necessarily know the job that they need to do. So part of the thing is how do you end up knowing what the jobs are that you need to do at a given stage of, of, of a journey? Well, for me, because I took a company from nothing to selling millions of units, I've worked in big companies, worked in consulting. I feel like I've, I, I have an ability to sort of see around the corners a little bit. And with that ability and having done a lot of jobs, done almost every job at least once, I can, I, I can do everything sort of mediocrely, which means that I can staff for something that is better or I can staff with someone better than I would be at the job. Um, so that's, that's knowing the job. And then you need to pair up and you have to, you have to be able to find out or figure out if the person that you're interviewing or that you're trying to fill that general position really has the superpower or the ability and the desire to do that job. And people are honestly oftentimes not super direct about that. And the key as, 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 a, uh, as an executive or as a leader is to, is to get, is to, get to the, the essence of that person and try to make a good pairing. Yeah, because many times people uh, go for the idea of doing the job, but when you actually get down to doing it, and especially when it's trying to scale something from nothing, there's a lot of rolling up your sleeves, a lot of minimum budgets, minimum uh, flexibility and resource to be able to bring this product to life, to then get it to market, to then scale it as well. So sometimes the idea is more attractive than actually getting to do the work. Yeah, and I, one thing I would say about that is that if I take any of my, you know, I. When I take on a project, I assume that it's a four-year commitment. And if you assume it's a four-year commitment and you assume that you're going to have success, then you can make your success. But along that journey, I've found that you need to reinvent the team a minimum of three times, which sounds crazy, but you're going to reach three inflection points within those four years. And so the core team that that that... I've found that I've staffed at the beginning when, when we're at zero is going to be a completely different core team than, than at the end of those four years. Certain people are going to migrate with, with the team and are going to evolve their roles and, and be comfortable changing roles. And certain people are going to be amazing for a certain phase and they're not necessarily going to be amazing at the next phase. And I think staying on the staffing conversation that we're, that we're having we as, as leaders need to be honest with ourselves. Like, is this person going to be great for where we, need, we now need to get to, even though they, I'm sure, are a wonderful person? Yeah, absolutely. And so how do you set expectations around that within the organization, within those that you have to um, report maybe to the timeline, so that four-year horizon, um, or the, the evolving team? How do, you, how do you set those expectations? Well, I think that one of the most important things is to just be honest with people and to be open with people. I think there's often a, a misunderstanding about leadership, which is that you need to know more and you need to have, you know, divine knowledge and, and, and dictate or direct people. I, our team should take us to where we're trying to get to. It shouldn't be only my job to get us there. In fact, I feel like I'm only doing my job if the team takes me to a place that I didn't even know was possible. And so I, I think just open and honest conversations about where we are, about where we're trying to get to, and just being direct and honest with people, these kinds of conversations end up unfolding and, and, and just creating an environment of, of, 
of that open conversation will will get you there, but easier said than done sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think not only do you have this unique perspective of entrepreneur, startup, uh, consulting, and then entrepreneur, but also hardware products with Logitech, software projects, uh, as well as physical clothing products as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges of bringing either or any, or any of these products to market, but also how may, where you've maybe seen some are slightly easier than others or, or any differences from that sort of side of things? You know, I think if you take, if you take hardware as, uh, as, as, as sort of the environment that I'm in right now, I mean, there's, there are certain challenges that are inherent with hardware. Number one, it's, it, it's expensive to build hardware. Uh, and when I say hardware, we're talking here at Logitech. We're a multi-product, multi-brand company. We make accessories. We make microphones. We make earphones. So that kind of stuff is is hardware. So it's expensive to uh, to get in the business, right? You have minimum quantities. You have a very long, complicated technology laden development cycle. Um, you have minimum order quantities, and then you have a supply chain that's fairly complex. There's a reason why there's the word hard in hardware. Exactly. Then you take soft goods and you say, okay, it's the opposite, right? It requires less capital, faster time to market, less complex. The interesting part about that is that, and, and actually when I started a little mismatch, that was partly why I had gotten into the world of, of soft goods. In the world, I'd been working in the world of hardware, mostly when I was at Frog Design and I talked about launching Disney Electronics it took a year before you in business, a year of development and a and minimum of a few million dollars. And in, in soft goods, within six weeks, you'd have a full sample set and you could begin selling. What I didn't realize in the world of soft goods was that I would be selling to the divisional merchandise manager or the VP of merchandising at a store, but there'd be 75 other people trying to sell the same category. So while the businesses, one is easier to get into and one is harder, the one that's harder to get into means that it's not as noisy in general once you're trying to build the business. While, while it is highly competitive, you know, the number of competitors may be fierce, but there are fewer of them. And so you've gone through the ideation, you've built your team, you've, you've set expectations, you've started to build the product and launch. As you've, as you've launched these products within these organizations, what, is, what have you seen as some of the reactions from the other divisions and the other, other leadership there of this new up-and-coming product? And how, again, can you advise our audience on whether that's managing expectations or continuing to, to grow this product so that it can scale? You know, the interesting thing... Um, about launching a product is that part of what I'm working on here at Logitech uh, is that we've got a business called Ultimate Ears. And Ultimate Ears was founded in the back of uh, Van Halen's tour bus because Van Halen was, was going deaf. And so the in-ear monitor was created. So when you watch the Grammys and you see that thing in, in, in someone's ear when they're performing, that's most likely an ultimate ears in your monitor. And our challenge was how do we, how do we bring that, how do we bring that to market to a consumer? The interesting thing about this project is that turns out these earphones are actually 3d printed. They're not made in the classic model of going to 
a factory somewhere far away and building thousands, tens of thousands of them and then hoping to build a business. So part of why I was attracted to this opportunity was I actually had a different flexibility here than the traditional uh, hardware or the hard part of hardware. There's a whole ton of technology in the technology stack that I'm working with that makes our product really complex. But we have a flexibility here, which is sort of a flexibility in, in this product which is that we can rapidly iterate, we can test and learn, almost in, 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 in the software environment that, 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 that one could discuss because we're not dealing with the traditional supply, supply chain and we're dealing with, 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 with rapid product development and new technologies. And so what have been some of the challenges that you've seen with um, launching these new products, these new types of products, um, whether that's in the clothing industry or, or um, with the ultimate ears at Logitech? What, what would you say are some challenges to, to look, look out for? When you're launching a product, um, again, I, 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 don't, I think the world has changed a little bit in the sense that, you know, there's, you can imagine there, I think there was a Super Bowl commercial at one point where, Someone launches a product, I think in this case it was a website, you turn the lights on and suddenly it's just raining money, raining orders. I think that we, we hear hero stories of that all the time in the news. That generally doesn't happen. Generally, generally what happens is that it's an iterative process of learning throughout time and, and building linear growth through rapid iteration. And so um, I would say that that is the key learning for me, which is that how, how can we quickly get to market and how can we quickly learn from the market and how can we rapidly iterate to get to a better answer? So for example, with our earphones, when we launched, we sold zero the first day online. And we have now, in a period of four months, gone from zero sales on our first day to literally a large operating business and it's through a set of singles and doubles, not home run after home run. And there is now an incredible amount of data available an incredible amount of platforms available to learn about who your potential customer is, how to turn them into customers and how to correctly message to them so that they understand the values, the features and benefits of your product. And so we're in a different world now. And back in the day, when I was younger, when you launched, you really needed to just, you, you turned it on, you pushed it into the channel, and you you hope, you had your fingers crossed, you hoped that it would sell off that end cap. And a lot of people operate in that way today, but there are just a tremendous amount of tools in the next generation go-to-market that allows us to be smarter and, and more nimble. You mentioned about inflection points, and with, with Ultimate Ears from ideation through development through launch and beyond what what would you call out as some of those major inflection points that that you felt was taking this product and this this company to the next level each time yeah so i i think i've mentioned a few of them sort of tangentially here but you know one inflection point would be thinking about who and when we're talking about inflection points we're talking about driving i'm talking about driving demand but who is our customer? So when you uh, think about earphones, you would say, I should go to Best Buy. Um, I should go to a traditional uh, retailer for earphones. We have something that is a completely bespoke product that is 100% made to your geometry. 
your wife cannot put these earphones in her ear because they simply won't fit her. And so the first insight for us was that turned into a reality was how do we not sell where everyone else is selling? Because if we're with everyone else, we're just one of them. And so we went to super high-end apparel stores uh, in San Francisco, Wilkes-Bashford, in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, a a retail store called Richard's, where people are spending thousands of dollars on bespoke suits. And why not get a bespoke set of earphones while you're there? Our earphones are $500 to $1,500. And they are arguably the best earphones that money can buy. So we put ourselves in a venue with the best stuff that you could wear that money could buy. And that was a huge insight that it was intuitive, but not, not obvious. And once we did it, it started working. Yeah, you'd, you'd almost think, you know, associated with t- the Tesla buyers and, as you said, yeah, those the Savile Row custom, custom suit uh, buyers as well. That's really smart. I love that. Uh, you know, another, another insight would just be simply around um, pricing strategies. And so you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Tesla. Another company that I really uh, admire is Peloton. And when you start looking at Peloton and you see how they're advertising, they don't talk about a $2,500 bike and a $40 membership fee. They talk about $58 a month. And they did this with, with, with a tool called Affirm. And Affirm is uh, a next generation sort of payment platform. And so we just launched three weeks ago with Affirm. And so it takes our earphones from being, uh, as I said, $500 to $1,500 to being less than a dollar a day to listen to your favorite music and hear things that you never thought were even in the music. It completely transforms the narrative. And so these are the kinds of insights that drive inflection points in your business. And you can see just in how I phrase that, it's a completely different phraseology. Do you want to spend $1,500 on earphones? Wow, that sounds expensive. Do you want to spend less than a dollar a day to appreciate your music like you've never appreciated it before? Suddenly it sounds totally achievable. So, Jonah, let's dig in a little bit about Ultimate Ears and tell me about some of the innovation and disruption that, that this this new offering is bringing to this market. And for me personally, I really want to understand how you get that mold of the individual's ear to be able to 3D print it. It's a great question. When I came into Ultimate Ears, what I realized was one of the big challenges was data capture of your ear. And the classic way that an in-ear monitor was made is that you'd spray foam into someone's ear with a trained professional. The next step Logitech and Ultimate Ears had taken is that we had developed ear scanning technology, but that still required a technician that was highly trained to use a very expensive piece of equipment. And when I came in, that's what we were doing in those high-end retail stores that I had discussed. And what we realized is that we were never going to scale. We were never going to be able to build an e-commerce business and build potentially a global business if we had to be reliant on a, on a trained professional waiting for you to come in the door or for them coming to you. And so we ultimately built a technology that can be delivered to you in a fit kit. You place your order online for a UE 11 and or 18 or 7 or 5, those are four different uh, models. You place your order, and two days later, a fit, a fit kit gets delivered 
And in your living room or in your office or wherever you care to fit yourself, in 10 minutes or less, between our FitKit and, our, and an iPhone app, we will fit you for a custom-made, custom-fit pair of Ultimate Ears uh, earphones. And you will mail that back with our, with our self-addressed uh, FedEx label. And within 10 business days, we will go through a 100-step process to building your custom-fit earphones. How did you get to that end solution how many iterations did it get to okay we've got to get this kit to these people's hands to we've got to be able to fit it uh, then be able to um, create the fitting for their ear what was kind of a little bit about that process to get to that as this is the solution that we need so having launched and having uh, gone through an entire go-to-market uh, process with the ear scanning technology, we just realized it didn't scale. And so we really put our, uh, put our mind to what could be other solutions. And uh, we came across a company called Revels uh, out of Canada. And Revels uh, was the leading Canadian Kickstarter. Uh, and we realized though Revels was commercializing a, a different product, we could, we could leverage their technology to create the fit kit and to create the fitting technology. So we ended up acquiring Revels and integrating their team into our team and leveraging this incredible knowledge base to build the fit kit, which is a completely disruptive strategy for how to deliver custom fit earphones from the way the entire rest of the market uh, is delivering them. So we have a completely new experience for a consumer. It is a highly consumer-focused experience and instead of a clinical medical provider experience. And what it ultimately results in is us being able to deliver you the best earphones, arguably, that money can buy, and you can fit yourself in the privacy of your own living room. So it, it really is a wonderful story that we're now beginning to commercialize and seeing re really cool success with. And uh, it's because of a variety of technologies that have come together. With your experience in both being an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur, what would you say are some of the biggest differences um, and some of the biggest similarities between those two um, mindsets that you have to have and the two, the two ways of working that you have to operate in? You know, fundamentally, I think it's exactly the same, being an entrepreneur and being, being an entrepreneur. I would say for me, the reason why I'm an entrepreneur now, and it doesn't mean that I will always be an entrepreneur, is number one, I love the challenge. But number two, I have raised lots of money and I have a lot of friends that are always out raising money. And fundamentally, if you just look at the rule of numbers, it's really hard. So if I just give you an anecdote of one of my friends, he's exited two businesses. He has an unbelievable idea that has a lot of proof of concept already. And he's had 97 venture or institutional uh, investment meetings, and he hasn't yet gotten to yes. He hasn't raised his Series A, and he's super stressed about it. And so, if you if you think about my life, I've got some young kids. I want to enjoy my life, and I want to deliver amazing value. I'm able to take that off the table. I'm able to take the fundraising process out of the equation and focus on building and focusing on, and I'm able to focus on building value and having the fun of being the entrepreneur. And maybe for some. The fundraising and the cash flow and the, the cash that, you know, making payroll every other week is fun. But to me, that never was the fun part. 
And so that's, again, a reason why I, I am an entrepreneur right now. But back to your original question, the mindset is the same. The steps I'm taking are the same. And sort of the verb that I bring day in and day out, 100% the same as when I was an entrepreneur. So as we think about the business leaders within an organization who are looking to bring someone like you in to build a team, to build the next new product that's going to help them continue to exist and grow and scale uh, into the future, what advice would you give the hiring manager, the person, that's, whether that's the chief product officer of an organization or CIO or um, even in the chief digital side of the business as well? What advice would you give them on how to attract talent like yourself and, and retain talent like yourself? The first thing is it starts at the top and whoever is the highest ranking person has to be supportive and has to be engaged. Number two, you've got to have money that's allocated and dedicated. Um, and it, it, there needs to be a degree of transparency about that because there's nothing worse than saying you want something and then not being able to finance it. And as the entrepreneur, the entrepreneur, you know, that's devastating. Number three, I would say you got to know what you're getting. And that being what I mean by know what you're getting is that you don't know what you're getting until you get it. Um, and you have to be open to what you're getting, being disrupted, being transformational. Oftentimes executives, and again, Back when I was a consultant, I think I dealt with over 200 companies. People said they wanted disruption, but they actually really didn't. And so to fund and to engage in the entrepreneurial process inside of an existing organization requires a willingness that the answers may be contradictory, may, be, may violate your core business, and that's okay. And so I think with those three things, as a leader, you can be set up for, for success building an internal team uh, to be entrepreneurial and to drive change. But if you look at many companies, many companies grow through acquisition um, and they acquire companies that already have scale. And maybe perhaps that one of the reasons that that is, is that it's easier and, and, and it doesn't require the same patience that, that the entrepreneurship process requires because, you know, everything is always the best kept secret uh, or it happened overnight and that overnight took, you know, three years to get going. And then suddenly overnight was was the last mile of the exercise. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I, and I think what you were mentioning towards the end around innovation by acquisition uh, is in itself its own challenge. Uh, you know, just because you've acquired the company doesn't mean that they're integrated into your ecosystem and your, your company. And sometimes they can they can be unsuccessful and that investment does not help you leapfrog the uh, the talent gap or the product gap that you, you you spotted and was the reason why you bought them in the first place. And so any, any thoughts around that aspect of um, bringing new products uh, to, to market from within an organization by acquisition, whether that's the acquisition of startups um, or, or even at slightly more established companies? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, question. We actually, on our team, we acquired a company that was the number one Canadian uh, Kickstarter uh, called Rebels. And I think that it, it, it it's worked out really well because we knew why we were buying the company and the team. And it integrated into our, into our, uh, into our thesis. So they had this unbelievable InstaFit uh, earphone and earphone technology 
that I won't go into here, but it integrated into our thesis, which was that we're building a custom fit earphone business and we're we're gonna we're gonna do this in new and, and interesting ways. And so it has become an enabling technology as well as an, a team that has come into our team to help us with our mission, which is different than sort of bolting on bolting on a company to an existing Corco and, and sort of hoping for the best. Interesting. And so, Jonah, any final thoughts or any recommended resources for our listeners? I mean, my final thought is that I, I, I hope that uh, from this conversation, people are inspired to bring entrepreneurship into their organization, to take the challenge, to dive in. And, and I'm happy to happy and open to having continued conversations and engaging with your community on, on successfully disrupting the status quo. Perfect. Jonah, thanks for joining us this week. Thank you.